Okay, so, okay, yeah. Today, okay, today's talk is Chafet. Um, we pick up in the middle of Chafal, Hamad's bet. And what we have been dealing with is a shift from people of great merit, again, now, we haven't really even gotten to Choni HaMagel in the discussion of the Mishnah. To me, that story sort of dominates and is in the background. I might be projecting because the Gemara hasn't even introduced it yet. But regardless, we have been dealing with stories of, like, other great people um, and their merits um, or sometimes their problems, like the guy who was uh, by the river and then, you know, said, Kama Mechur and so on. But nevertheless, most recently, we've been dealing with, you know, the story about who was it, Rav Arbar Ava, who they took to in order to protect them from falling walls and falling buildings, and there's been a theme of falling walls and falling buildings, and we've had Nachumish Gamzu, who protected the building from falling in, but in that context, it's important to appreciate the shift here. First of all, those people are very different than Nachumish Gamzu, number one, even those, and then, um, then Tony uh, HaMeagel, things we've pointed out before, number one. But more, but more than that, what we're dealing now with the shift is from great people, like, you know, you know, Echad Bedoro, amazing, amazing people, to what the Gemara recently has dealt with, which is anonymous people doing small deeds of kindness and the power that that has as well. And there's really a profound shift of, you know, moving away from, you know, from the type of model that's being set out by a, thank you, by a, um, um, you know, by a Choni HaMegel, or even by these other great people um, who were different than Choni HaMegel, but still, like, as I said, great individuals here. It's in anonymous people, small, small deeds. So the uh, famine was a, a whole neighborhood was saved from um, pestilence because of a person who lent out the shovels for people to dig graves. And, you know, so obviously pestilence causes death. So there's like a meter connected meter there. The, a whole neighborhood was saved from fire because of a woman who shared or heated up oven. Obviously another type of a meter connected meter. And that's now sort of the theme that we're in. So with this, we pick up in the following way. Um... Okay, where were we? Beginning of the line. Beginning of the line, Amrulay. Okay, I'll thank you. Amrulay. So about ten lines down the wide line. Amrulay the Rav Yehuda. They said to Rav Yehuda. Also Kimsi. So the, um, um, the, excuse me, oh man. Um, so uh, the, um, um, the uh, locust has arrived. So, um, you know, locust is about to come. And we know that's one of the things you make a Tanit. And maybe even the, all, the, all the neighboring places, the whole country makes a Tanit. Anyway, locust is on, is on its way. So, Gadar Tanisa, he made a Tanit. Amulei, they said to him, Well, come off Sudan. You know, we don't have to worry. It's not really going to affect us. Um, so, I don't know why they somehow felt that it wouldn't make a difference. So, but they felt they weren't concerned about it. So, what? They were far away, right? Presumably, presumably were, they were far away. And so that's getting back to that aspect of the mission about even distant places. It would seem, but it's not explicit. He said to them, Maybe they brought like a lunch with them? So, <laughs> meaning, what do you mean? Oh, you feel, oh, is that going to affect us? Leave me. They're going to destroy the crops. The only way I want to affect you is if they're bringing lunch with them. So, trying to, right, make people appreciate, don't trip realize what the concern is. Amalei Rav Yehuda. They said that was one service of Yehuda. Then people said Rav Yehuda. Igamos son of the Chazire. There is a pestilence among the, uh, among the, among the pigs. So, Gazer Tanis, he made a Tanis. So that's something that he felt presumably could spread to humans. So it's a similar story of Rav Yehuda, Rav Yehuda being sensitive to the way that these things could affect, you know, outside of the realm you think they might affect. So, name a kasavur of Yehuda makas makam meshuleches mimin echad meshuleches mimin mikolaminim. That once a plague is spread amongst one species, it'll spread to another species. Um, so the Gemara says no. Uh, did I skip line? Shani Shani Chaziri didamin ma'ayu libnei inish so no, maybe it's not a general statement that it spreads from one species to another, but maybe specifically pigs, their intestines are similar to human intestines, and therefore I don't know why they thought this was specifically something that maybe it was, something specifically that afflicted the intestines. Anyway, this is the type of thing that they could think crosses species from pigs to humans, but we shouldn't necessarily generalize that we assume everything does this. Um, right, I mean, most, most, I mean, like, right, AIDS was because it crossed over from, from, uh, from uh, monkeys, Right. Wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, some of the most, uh, you know, d- terrible diseases are the ones that have, cr- that have crossed the, lo- the species line. What? Yeah. Swine flu. Oh, swine flu. Yeah, yeah. 
there you go, right. And I hate to be elegant about it. How did they know this? It's like amazing to me that they knew this. Well, we're we're building all this on modern medical... It doesn't mean they were right. And they'll be so impressed with a lot of things. Yeah. How, how do you know? Maybe he was wrong. That was his assumption. And maybe, and they could know things by empirical, by, by observation, even if they didn't understand the underlying science. I see. Only our methods for knowledge are I'm not saying that. Anyway, all right. So the Gemara says like this. Um, okay. So, all right. Um, I'm with Shmuel. They said to Shmuel. That was Rabbi Yehuda. This is Shmuel. This is Shmuel, Rabbi Yehuda's Rebbe. So let's see what Shmuel did. There is a, you know, um, a plague, pestilence in Bechuzai, which is a place. So, Gadar Tanisa, which is presumably, yeah, somewhere distant. So he made a tainis. Amrulei, they said to him, Merchak is in a distance, or Meruchak. Amar, he said, Lake of Ma'abra, Hacha the Pasigwe. So there is no, what is there, you know, is there, is, 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 is there, is there, is there, is there some, is there some type of a, you know, of, of a crossing that's going to stop it from coming? So like, you know, okay, who cares, it's distance, the thing will still spread, there's nothing that's going to prevent it from getting here. So, um, again, a point of, going back to the theme of the Mishnah about the surrounding areas that have to fast and the thing about the concern of spreading, um, although, if you do, if you remember, and this is something that I will revisit, that one of the things that was not in the list of things that you do the distant places was Dever right it said where was it it said um, where was it so the immediate surroundings by Dever but not but the places where it says you, you do you, your matrin b'chol makom wasn't said there so Dever was a, a thing which they felt was only the nearby locations. So again, this is presumably something that Shmuel, that, that they felt was not nearby enough, and Shmuel said, there's nothing that's going to stop it from setting here. We're nearby enough. There's not enough of a distance for us not to worry about it. Okay. Um, I'm to Rav Nachman. They said to Rav Nachman, Ikamosan of Yisrael. There's a, there, there's a Mosana, you know, Dever, there's a, the plague in, in Eretz Yisrael. So Gozer Tanisa. So now we're going from Eretz Yisrael to Bavel. Now that's a real big jump because again in the Mishnah even the things that said B'chol Makom you didn't know how much it meant B'chol Makom. Did it mean everywhere in the same country? Did it mean if it's in China you have to do it in France? So here Dever which in the Mishnah is only immediate surroundings here he's making a, a Ta'anit from, from Eretz Yisrael to Bavel. So let's take a look. So Amar he said in Givira Loke Shifcha Lokoske so if the if if the uh, you know uh, if the mistress of the house is uh, being smitten, will the uh, will the maid servant not certainly? So right, it's not exactly clear, right? That so that he sees this a little bit might, a little bit more exactly, like you know metaphysically or you know religiously. If Eretz is being punished, will be punished as well. Not necessarily that naturally something would spread so much so much of a distance. So the Gemara is going to analyze this. The Gemara says, "Time of the Gvir that's because of you know the uh, you know the, uh, the, the 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 mistress of the house and the maidservant. Hashivka v'shivka. It was the maidservant and the maidservant. One place in Chutzaretz to another place in Chutzaretz. Lo, you would not do a tainus for this debtor. Didn't they say the Shmuel Ikamosana bechuzai and Gazer Tanisa that the immediate story we just had, which was all in Bavel, all in Chutzaretz, that because of Dever and bechuzai he made a tainus. No, Shani Hasam. Even the Ika Shirusa, the Levi, the Asya, the Hedya, the Hedya. So there it's different. Since there are caravans, it accompanies it and comes with the caravan. So here you go. It really, you know, sounds like, you know, they understood. Right, but they understood that people are going to carry the disease with them. There's actually a lot of travel between those places. And that reflects back Shmuel's statement, which is there's nothing that is going to, you know, there's no like type of a river or a cross, some type of a thing that's going to prevent the disease from spreading because there's regular travel. Right, that's also part of the problem nowadays, right, with uh, international travel and planes travel, etc., how diseases are able to spread. So basically what you have is the following. The Mishnah says, Dever you only do in the immediate surroundings. 
So we have two stories of non-immediate surroundings where they make a tainus for Kefir. One from one place in Babel to another, which is presumably not considered to be the immediate surroundings, and the other is Eretz Yisrael to Babel. So Eretz Yisrael to Babel is explained in some sort of religious, metaphysical way. Okay, but the two distant places in Babel is explained by saying, you know, it's not just about actual physical distance. If there's actually a lot of, of travel between the two places, then that's a place that we have to reasonably be concerned it's going to spread to. Okay, so even though Dever in the Mishnah seems to be a more limited concern, here the Gemara is recognizing that it actually could spread a great deal if there's travel between the places. Okay, so now the Gemara um, talks, um, so that would seem to be an interesting interlude because now we resume the theme of talking about like, you know, like less, less than a, uh, uh, prestigious people and the tremendous merit that even the you know less prestigious people carry. So let's take a look. Um, Abba Umna, Abba the blood letter, Every day he would get a, gri- a, a greeting from the heavenly uh, yeshiva. So somehow in his dream or whatever, so they would say, something would appear to him every day and say, you know, Shalom Aleichem, you know, you know, he would get some type of a, uh, of a welcome from the heavenly retinue every day. Um, Abayi would only get a, a greeting from the heavenly yeshiva every year of Shabbos. And Rava would only get it every Arab Yom Kippur once a year. So here you get, again, notice this point. I mean, first of all, there's the interesting Abaye and Rava issue, which you might remember other Gemara speak about, like how Abaye lived 60 years and Rava only lived 40 years because Abaye was Osek in Torah and Gemilas Chassad and Rava only in Torah. But first of all, there's an interesting question of, like, why did Abaye get more merit, more welcome by the heavenly retinue than, 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 than Rava? That's one question. But the bigger problem, the issue is, this guy we never heard of is getting a greeting every day. And again, it's raising this theme of the small, more anonymous people, and they have tremendous merit. So let's see how the Gemara elaborates on this. Okay. So apparently this was known. Who got greeted on a monthly basis, on, on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, on an annual basis. So Abaye, you know, felt despondent. Like, you know, this, uh, that, that this Abba Umna person, this uh, blood letter, is getting, uh, is on a higher level than he is. So Amule, so they, presumably the heavenly retinue, said to him, You can't live up to his deeds. Why can't you live up to his deeds? What were his deeds? Um, when he would, is a, it literally means he would do a thing, but what it means is he would let blood. When he would let blood, he would sit like he'd have a separate room for the men and a separate room for the women because presumably you're going to be, you know, exposing areas of the body to do bloodletting so it would not be tzniyot to do them in the same room. The Isla Levusha, the Ispe Karna, Davis Bezia Kusilta. And he would have a special garment, like, you know, like a robe that they would put on for an examination robe. And it would have a uh, horn, right, because they would let blood, like, through horns, which would, like, the blood would come out of. And it was a slit by the shoulder. So basically, it was a garment that he could, you know, that he could put, you know, he could, he, he could let the blood. For, for the women, it was a garment for the women without having to expose their body. It had already a pre-made hole and a slit exactly where he needed to insert, you know, the horn, and the horn was pre-inserted. Um, and when a woman would come, he would dress her with this robe, that he should be able to do the uh, letting of the blood without looking at her, uh, at her you know, uncovered body. The Isle Duchte de Tznia, the shot, now that was one thing. The Tznias and the separating of the men and women for, for themselves, that they shouldn't see one another, and that even he as the professional should not have to see more than he needed to see. The Isle Duchte de Tznia, and he had a private place, the Shari de Pshiti, that people would put the little coins there. The Shakyo. Um, uh, um, you know that, that he would take for his services so people would sort of play, you know, pay for his services they put money in like a box as they would be leave no one would see he wouldn't collect it directly you pay as you leave in this box nobody sees um, the Islay Shadi Bay if you had the money for the service you put it in the box the Laislay Lo Mixif and if you didn't have, you wouldn't be embarrassed. You wouldn't be. You wouldn't have to pay if you weren't able to pay. Now, when he had a Torah student come for his services, 
Um, um, he didn't ask for any fee at all even if the person had money he said you know professional courtesy he didn't ask for any fee it wasn't even if he could afford it and after the uh, Torah student got up and was done with his bloodletting he would actually give the student money so the Amrulay and he said to him go you know take care of yourself you know go buy yourself a nice meal especially after you left blood you may be a little bit hungry so he actually not only would he not charge them he would even give them money so Yomachad so that's how he, that's, that's his amazing doings now again you know okay it's not like you know oh my god completely unheard of and it's actually quite interesting that they say to Abai you couldn't do something like this now maybe he wasn't a bloodletter maybe he didn't have the opportunity to do that type of a thing but again it's very you know I think these stories are profound that these sort of like the general type of basic like yashras that can infuse your daily life and how profoundly you know significant that could be and the tremendous amount of zechus that could come from that so Yom Echad so okay. Um, so Yomachad said Rabbi Zugadar about him So one day Rabbi sent two students to check him to check how righteous he really was. Rabbi was still, you know, needed some some uh, some deeper understanding of why he got why he had so much merit. So Osvinu. So he welcomed the students. He sat them down. So presumably, not only did he let them bless blood, but he invited. He, he fed them. He gave them to drink. like he He folded up some nice, you know, cloth garments for them to sleep on at night. With Safra in the morning. They took, they wrapped up this beautiful silk, it wasn't silk wool, whatever it was. Anyway, these beautiful, expensive bedding, and like you know, you go to a, people go to nice hotels and they take with them the uh, you know the robes or whatever. So they went dead, and after all of this good he did, like they were testing him, they basically stole the bedding. The and they went out to the marketplace. And then they found him in the marketplace, and they specifically they wanted to like see you know how he would react. So Amalei, they went to him and they said, Mar They said, Hey, you know, Ab, what's his name? You know, no, yeah, like he said, what's his name? Abba Umna. They said, Hey, Mr. Abba Umna or Dr. Abba Umna, we've got these gorgeous uh, uh, sheets and beddings. How much do you think they're worth? So you know, we'd like to buy them. Could you give us an es- a price estimate on them? <laughs> so, so, um, so, okay. Such and such. They said, how do you know? Maybe it's worth more. No, I know it's worth that much. That's how much I paid for them. So, so he knew that they were stolen. But he didn't say anything about it, right? He didn't say, thief, thief. He, he answered their question. So, you're right. We took them from you. They said at your leave, like, please explain to us. What did you suspect us? Of when you, you realized we had stolen it, here we are, these Torah scholars. What did you think? What did you think was up? Amalei, he said, Amina you had some tremendous need for funds. There was like captives that needed money raised to be redeeming them. And you were embarrassed to directly ask me for funds, and but you were doing it in order to use it for this mitzvah. Now that won't allow Gezel, obviously, but somehow he explained like he wasn't going to think they were running. There must be some tremendous need that justifies what they're doing. So Amulei, they said to him, Okay, fine, we did it to, to test you, but take them back. Amulehu, he said to them, no. From that moment that I assumed you were going to use them for Pidyan Shruyim, in my mind, I had already given them over to Tzedakah. So I don't want to take them back. Give them to Tzedakah. Okay, so there you see again how this, you know, this tremendous righteousness in the, in the, you know, in the, in, in, in uh, an average quote unquote person. Um, so, you know, th- I just have to say, this remi- evokes two stories. One story is, they say, of uh, the Chafetz Chaim, that he was once, um, that he was once, uh, um, you know, had to testify in court about something. So, um, like to, about some other case. Anyway, so the lawyer said to the judge, he says, I want you to know the nature of the man standing before you. They say about him that once some people came, you know, to, uh, you know, some poor people came and he invited them in his house and he had them stay the night. And then in the middle of the night, you know, they took his, like, uh, silver, can- you know, candlesticks, his silver, and they, they ran off with it. And he woke up in the morning, he realized what had happened, and he ran after them and he said, and he said, Amochel, 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 because he didn't want them to transgress the prohibition of, th- of theft. So so the judge said to the lawyer, he said, 
Do you really believe that story? So the lawyer said, actually, I don't. But let me tell you something. They don't tell stories like that about me and you. <laughs> so, so that's one story, which is almost very similar. The other story I've got to tell you is, so here he is. He gives the uh, rabbinic students professional courtesy, right? And then Abai sends these two students to check him out. So which is, reminds me of the, of, the, of the joke that this uh, dentist, like, so uh, a priest goes to the dentist, and after the dentist takes care of him, he says, like, uh, how much do I owe you? So the dentist says, no charge, professional courtesy. So a week later, the priest sends him a gold cross. So then a minister goes to the dentist and says, how much do I owe you? No charge, professional courtesy. courtesy. A week later, he sends him a leather-bound Bible. So then a rabbi goes to the dentist, how much do I owe you? He says, no charge, professional courtesy. A week later, he sends him two rabbis. <laughs> <laughs> so, so here, look, I sent the two rabbis. <laughs> so my, I have a brother-in-law who's a dentist, and he actually gave professional courtesies to some people in the, uh, some, there's a whole yeshiva in his neighborhood, and next thing he knew, he was getting everybody from the yeshiva, so it's really for <laughs> Anyway, all right. So moving on. Uh, you had a question? Yeah. Yeah, well, just any comment about the, the lack of righteousness of Abba and the rabbis? Uh, sorry, uh, uh, Oh, so we're going to look at Abba and Oh, you mean why they stole that? Yeah, I mean, they people a testament. Yeah, so that's an interesting question, too. Like, was that, were they over on Gezo? They didn't really have intention to steal it. Like, is it really... I mean, that's an interesting question. Like, how were they allowed to do that even as a test? Okay, but so that's definitely worth uh, exploring more deeply. Let's take a look now at the difference between Abaye and Rava. Okay, So now Rava felt bad that Abaye got a greeting every week and he only got it once a year. So Amrle, so they in the heavenly retinue said to Rava, Mistayecha, it is to be sufficient for you to come Karcha. You, your merit protects the entire city. So remember, before I think we had that, uh, they said that we didn't need, was that, who was that that was, oh, that was Rob. Anyway, so again, we have this idea of protecting the entire city, but again, it doesn't really explain the idea that Abaye seems to be getting, you know, more honor than he does. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, but again, we're getting to this idea of protecting, you know, the merit and protecting the city, which again would suggest that the people higher up on this hierarchy, Abaye and this Abba Umna, would protect even more. So again, it's this issue about do we really know who's where on the hierarchy and what merit of even simple, you know, or, you know, anonymous and non-famous individuals? Okay. So, the Mary says like this. Rav Broka Chuzah Lefet. So, this person, Rav Broka from, from Chuzah, from, was, uh, would commonly go to the marketplace in Bay Lefet. And this is, again, going to be continuing the theme of, like, people that you would have, you know, you don't even know about that have tremendous merit. And Havishchiach Eliyahu Gabay, Eliyahu would commonly, uh, you know, uh, accustom himself, with, you know, constantly be, you know, um, um, encounter Rav Broka. So, obviously, he's very, he's very righteous. He gets the regular visitations from Eliyahu. Amrlay, so he said to Eliyahu, is there somebody in this marketplace that is a Ben Olam Haba, worthy of the world to come? Presumably he meant, you know, not, 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 you know, outside of myself. I mean, I don't know if he was asking about himself, but presumably he wasn't. Anybody else in this marketplace other than me that's deserving of the world to come? Amrlay, lo, no! Um, okay. Maybe he didn't mean outside of myself. Anyway, but okay. As they were walking and waiting, all of a sudden, oh, he saw a certain person, Eliyahu, that was wearing black shoes, which presumably is not the Jewish practice. Um, and he did not have these, a tchela string in his garment, which presumably means he wasn't wearing tzitzis. Amalei, and Elio said to uh, Rav Broca, Chuzah, Hi, Bar Amal Da'asihu. This guy, who doesn't even look Jewish, is a Ben Olam Hapa. Roy Basrei, so Rav Broca Chuzai ran after him. Amalei, my Ovdecha, what are your deeds? Tell me what your deeds are. What, you, know, what, you know, what do you do that's uh, meritorious? Amalei, Zila Ibn Vitalamach, he says, I can't answer you, come back tomorrow. Okay, Rumachar Amalei, the next day he said to him, Ma'ovdecha, what are your deeds? Amalei, Zandukna Ana, I am a Zandukna, which by context, and Rashi says presumably means a, like a, uh, somebody who is a prison guard. Asarna Gavri Luchud, Vinashi Luchud. And when uh, prisoners come to me, I lock up the men in one section and the women in another section. So, to prevent, you know, immoral behavior, and as we know, happens in prisons as well, and possibly also to prevent rape. Um, Ramina, so again, there's that interesting sort of 
theme about Tznius as an important issue. Um, Vramina, but again, this might be more than Tznius, it might be rape. Vramina, Puraya, and we'll see about that in a minute. And I put my bed between honey lahani, between the two sections, so that there, nobody goes from one section to the next. That there should be no uh, sin that should occur, transgression that should occur. Now, when I see a Jewish woman who's being put into prison, and that the uh, non-Jews are uh, have are put their eye upon her, and that she, you know, and that she actually could be raped by them, so I am willing to risk my own life, you know, or or sacrifice myself in order to save her. Maybe not literally, but whatever. I'm willing to do whatever needs to be done in order to protect her. Once there was a betrothed woman by us, a young betrothed woman, that the non-Jews were, you know, putting their eye on her, where, you know, clearly they had uh, evil intentions about her. Shakli Durdaya de Khanra, I took the uh, leaves of the wine, um, and I put it on the hem of her cloak. The Amri, and they saw this, and they said, Oh, she's Tanahi, she's Anida. Yeah, she's menstruating. And therefore, presumably they had a revulsion of not wanting to have sex with her while she was menstruating. And that way, you know, without having to put myself, you know, directly put myself between them, I managed to avoid the problem, you know, to protect her. So, Amrle, my time, Alesa Chute, Virami Smesani Uchni, why are you not wearing tits and wearing black shoes? So, Amrle, he said to him, Ailino Benafikna Beni Nochrim, because I go in and out between, you know, amongst the, amongst non Jews. Um, they won't know that I'm a Jew. Kihavi Gazikzerta, and when they, uh, you know, so presumably, and I travel in certain circles where, where I hear certain things, and when I hear that they are, I mean, if he's a prison guard, presumably he's, you know, more embedded in that, in the non Jewish system there, and I hear things, and they don't realize I'm a Jew and I hear that when they've made an edict you know against the Jews and I let the rabbis know about this and they pray and it knows the decree it's interesting that the rabbis pray rather than other types of means of you know more pragmatic in, you know interference like we've seen before yeah well that is uh, oh you mean about the tzitzit yeah yeah, so first of all, it's interesting that it only mentions tcheles. Does tcheles mean tzitzit, and it's just using tcheles to represent tzitzit? doesn't mean in general people had tassels on their garments, which might very well be, and what makes tzitzit unique was not the fact that there were tassels, but the fact that it was a blue string. So, what? It's interesting that it mentions specifically, or could tcheles just could be represented. But yes, there actually is discussions about that, about people that are karav lamalchus, it has to do with other issues around, like bichukoseyem, and other cases where they speak about somebody like, you know, where he was uh, uh, blue he was magado blue, Blueies, etc., and other types of things that they, you know that have special categories relating to like karav lamalchus that allows certain latitude. But anyway, but we're not trying to justify it halachically, so that's not like the conversation. Let's let's finish the story, okay? Um, okay, and I so okay. Um, so now the Gemara says, okay. Um, Why, when I first asked you, did you not answer me? You said, come back tomorrow. I'm relayed that he shaked the gazik de No, because at that moment, I had just heard that there was an edict that had been decreed. I had to set my priorities straight. Let me first go tell the rabbis and let them pray for it. I'm not going to spend my time answering this guy here. Okay. So therefore, and that's why I couldn't answer you. It was a little bit interesting, right, because it, at least in my mind, evokes the earlier story about Nachamish Gamzu, who said, wait, and he was punished. Here he said wait, but it was the right thing. Here it was a wait because he had the priorities straight. Presumably Nachum Ishkamzu said wait and he had his priorities not straight. You know, he should have figured out how to give the guy food without making the guy wait. Yeah. That's a good point too. Right, that's a good point too. So I think that the power of this story here is you know, it even goes further than the issue of like the anonymous people, as I'm sa- as I've been saying, and the you know, and the people you. But here's somebody that actually you would look at it and say, this guy, what a sinner! Like he's not even dressing Jewish. He doesn't wear a kippah. He doesn't wear tzitzis. Like you know, the type of people that you know, the most unlikely person that you would think might be the person with the greatest merit, right? So it's a really powerful sort of story about. Who do we assume, you know, are the people with, you know, with merit, and who are the people, you know, you know that, uh, like this in this context, you know, can save people because of their deeds? Like before, we had you save people; you were so righteous 
that you save the wall from falling down. And that's sort of been the theme until now. Here, here's somebody that, number one, not only is like anonymous, somebody doctor you would think is like a sinner, somebody you would never think it, and number two, the way he saves people is very pragmatically. Like he saves people by protecting the women, by, you know, putting, by putting his bed between them, by doing certain things, by telling the rabbis, you know, so his sort of, his saving is not just by his metaphysical merit, it's actually by his actually this type of worldly deeds. And again, I think all of this creates an interesting contrast to like, you know, um, what's his name, to Choni um, HaMagel, the exact opposite extreme of all of this. Let's finish the story. Um, to the, okay. Adahachi Bahachi, you know, during that whole conversation, or as things were passing, Azuhanach Trey, Achi, some have the version Trey Achi, or, um, or two, two brothers came, or two people came, Asi Amarle, and so either it's two brothers, and then Amarle Elio said to him, or two people, and Asi Amarle, then Elio went and said to him, anyway, Hanach Nami Bnei Amodasi, these are all sort of getting Olam Haba, Ninhu. Adu Lugabai, he went to them, Amalu Mayo Daichu, what is it that you do? Amalu, they said to him, Inish Peduchianan, we're, we're, we're jesters. Mivadchinan Atsive, we make the, we, we make sad people laugh. Inami, Kichazin, or Kichazin of Betrayed, Islu Tigra, we see two people that are fighting, Badayu, with one another, Tachinan Vavdinan Lu Shama. So, you know, we lighten up the whole atmosphere, and we, 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 and all we do, you know, we, we jest around, and we get them to make peace with one another by trying to, you know, to encourage more laughter and positive feeling. Um, so this you know, Gemara apparently was quoted a lot in the early Hasidic literature, you know, about the power of like laughter and joy, and like you get Olam Haba, even like the simple person by bringing laughter into into the life and so on. Um, but again, people that you would think are the most like lowly and marginal in society, the one you completely dismiss, clowns, jesters, and here again, their deeds are actual deeds that are in very practical. It's not like you know, like before we started with deeds, like I never leave the base medrash. I'm always you know, I don't. You know, you know, very much like in the you know, you know, religious type of realm. And here, these are the deeds that are very pragmatic in terms of making a difference in people's lives. Yeah, first thing. Yeah. It's interesting that Eliyahu says, "Oh yeah, really, nobody here has been What about this Koyisol Yeshem Chelak Lamaba? Okay, so that's a good question. Um, that Koyisol Yeshem Chelak excellent question. Is a later line added to the Mishnah, which is the which is not standard rabbinic theology. Standard rabbinic theology. Tzadikim have Olam Haba. Um, you know, like that's what we say about the whole thing about Rosh Hashanah. Tzadikim are nechtavim nechtam lalto l'chayelam haba. Rishayim, you know, gehenim and the benonim are tzuliim ve'omdim. You know, what you say to the ger is, you know, when he converts, is you say, um, is you say, ain't Olam Haba ella l'tzadikim. Don't think just by being Jewish you're going to get Olam Haba. That thing that we all like saying that's very reassuring to us, Koyso Yeshem Chelak is actually a real outlier in rabbinic theology and was added later to the Mishnah to start the mission in a positive way, that mission Sanhedrin, yes. I would suggest that it isn't just that simple people, but that it's interesting that these are workers. Right. They're working, and because they're working, they have the opportunity. Abayi doesn't have the opportunity because he's sitting there. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Like, when they say to Abayi, you can't do, like, his deeds, doesn't mean that Abayi wasn't righteous enough to be able to, li- you know, to do that, but he doesn't have the opportunity to do it. You're in the base marriage the whole time. You don't have the opportunity to be doing these types of things. I think that that's an excellent point, and thank you for making that. Right, so that when, I, when they said to Abayi, you can't live up to it, it doesn't mean you're not as much of a tzaddik as he is, but you're in the base medrash, and this guy, every single day, look how he's helping people. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's an excellent point. Okay, so back to the Gemara. So we've already a little bit addressed this about the idea of Every place that has to that has to be involved in matriin doesn't necessarily mean fast. Or it's a little ambiguous in the mission. Minimally, it means doing the special prayers. It might very well mean the special prayers with the fast. There was different meanings of that in the Mishnah. Okay, but de- you know there was something that in the immediate environs, and then we had the discussion that Dever might be even more distant places because of travel and so on. But the, the, then the things that were listed in the Mishnah were things were like everywhere. Now, does everywhere mean across the globe? Does it mean in the whole country? It wasn't clear what the limits of everywhere were. But anyway. Some of the cases in the mission of everywhere were things like Kidathon and Yerakon, blights, you know, jaundice, disease, you know, to the, um, to the, to the grain, it was the, uh, the, the um, locust, and those types of things were things that would spread, and you would do it everywhere. Okay. Tadurabanan. Rabbi Yerakon. So, right, the, um, wind blasting of the grain, and jaundice, and disease, various locusts, Evil, like uh, wild animals that are going in inhabited places. The Yikivo Melashi, the Fundal Yerkon, the Cholshu. She defunded Yerkon, even the slightest amount, 
you know, is, you know, is, you don't have to wait till it gets to be a certain threshold. Even the slightest amount, you, you fast everywhere and you're mat- or you're matri and everywhere you, 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 you do the special prayers. That's an indication of bad things to come. Arbe v'chasiel, and similarly, the, the locust, the filo nira be'eret yishrela knaf echad, even if we're seen in the land of Israel, only one locust, one literally one wing, matri and aleyan, would be enough for everybody to be involved in the prayers and maybe the fast. Okay, because they come in swarms, exactly. And disease also doesn't stay where does it spread. Okay, it's not clear if the Tanakhama disagrees or if Rabbi Akiva is just clarifying. The chayas, so the wicked animals, tanabanan, chayara ashamru, not wicked, whatever, any wild animals, but uh, dangerous animals, when it is a like a uh, a, a disease, a disease it, when it's a problem that's spreading, you know, it's not just a chance occurrence. Well, we'll see what that means. It's not just a chance occurrence, but it's something that's tra- a traveling, spreading type of a problem. Then you are you do the you call out. You do again, which means minimally saying a name. When the tefilot might incorporate the idea of tefilot as well, uh, of tanit as well. If it's not something that's spreading, and it's maybe something that's more chance, in Matrina Lea you do not. How do you determine which is which? So if you have uh, lions uh, walking around in the city, that's a problem. If you see them in the fields, it's not a problem. Um, if they're traveling around in the day, problem. Night, not a problem. That's just standard. If the animal will see two people and run after them, Mishulechas, then you've got a problem. Because normally you might run after one person, but to run after two people, now you've got a real wild animal on your hands, a real uncontrollable animal. If it goes and hides from the presence of two people, it is not, a, it's not considered a problem that's spreading that we have to worry about. If it attacks, well, we'll see how all these different pieces fit together. If it attacks two people, killed two people, and ate one of them, that's a problem. Okay? <laughs> now, if it ate zero or one, it's a problem. But, interestingly, somewhat ironically, if it says, it says, um, uh, they both of them it's not a problem because maybe it was hungry so just because it's hungry doesn't mean that it's on a rampage and going and uh, you know and uh, going to attack other people alright so of course what even if it comes in the city and kills two people it's not like, how does that fit in with the other thing maybe that's only if it does it in the forest you know then it, you know so the Gemara will sort of fit these pieces together in a minute Okay. Um, also, the God, not Latino, may Arista, Mishulechas. Okay, if it went up to the rooftop and had grabbed a, uh, an infant out of its cradle, I don't know what type of, uh, you know, uh, well, anyway, exactly what animal we're talking about, that's a problem. Okay. What? Dingoes. Oh, oh, right, the dingoes, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so I was like this. Now the one's going to analyze all of this. Hagufakasha. Wait, we got an internal contradiction. Amarta nearest to the ear, Mishulechas. First you said in the city it's a problem, which implies it doesn't matter day or night, anytime. It goes by night or day. So which is it? You know, which of those was an and and which of those was an or? So the Gemara says no. Rokasha, hachikamar. Here's what I mean. Here's the beir biyom mishuleches. This is interesting. You might have thought it would have gone the other way. But if it's, you, it's only if the two things come together is it a problem. In the city and in the daytime. That shows that you've got this wild, you know, untamed, you know, raging animal on your hands. Beir belayla ain't mishuleches. Even if it's in the city, if it was only comes out at night and doesn't come out in the day, you don't really have a huge problem yet on your hands. Inami Basada, if it's in the fields, you know, okay, maybe its normal habitation is the forest, but still, it's not going into the city, it's only in the fields. So then, even if it's in the daytime, it's not a problem. It's only a problem if it's both, prepared, if it's both walking around in the city and in the daytime. But that's even if it didn't do anything. Remember, the Mishnah said, even if it's Rasa, right, you know, even if you just see it, but if you see it in this way that normally would ne- you would never see a lion walking around in the city in the daytime, now you got a problem. Now, so if it runs after two people, it's a problem. Mar says, what do you mean? Why does it have to run after two people? How That sounds like if it's just standing and not doing anything, it's not a problem. And then you said, if it hides from them, it's not a problem. Which implies that if it's standing and not hiding, there's always that middle case. It is a problem. It's not difficult. So there's two scenarios in the fields. 
in the field, is it close to like the swamp or a forest or not close to a swamp? So here's basically the way it works. If it's in a city, right in the middle of walking down Broadway, you don't need it to do anything. Just that it appears in the daytime in a city, that's a problem. If it's not in the city, it's out in the field, it's only going to be a problem if it does something. Now, there are two scenarios. One is a field near a forest. There, it's got the place to hide. It's near the forest. Naturally, it will be more bold. So then it would only be a problem if it actually actively ran after people. If it's in a field not near a forest, then even if it just doesn't run away from people, you've got a problem because it's not near its sort of habitation and it's not, and it's, and it's not running away, uh, presumably regardless. Okay? So there we have all these different gradations. City just appearing, field either chasing or not running away, depending if the field is near the forest or not near the forest, all these different gradations. <coughs> okay, now, let's go on to the next case. Uh, if it, uh, you know, it, uh, kills two people and only it's one of them, it's a problem. But even both of them isn't a problem. Now, where is that taking the place? So, what do you mean? He said even running after people is a problem. So, the Gemara says, No, now we're talking about in the forest itself. So in the field, right, where it's not its natural habitation, just running after people or not running away from people shows you've got a problem on your hand. But if you actually surprise a bear in the middle of the forest where it lives and, you know, and it kills somebody there, that's not a, that we don't send out a big alarm that a bear kills somebody when they, they surprise the bear in its, you know, in its home in the forest. So there it's only going to be a problem if it actually, you know, killed somebody and did not eat the person because that shows that this animal is not just about, you know, about, about eating for hunger. Of course, sometimes a bear will kill because it thinks that it's being, you know, it's being attacked or that it's protecting its young. But anyway, you understand the issues that the Gemara is dealing with. Okay. Gufa. Also, the guys would not want to know that Arisa Mishulachas, if it takes an infant, it's Mishulachas. So, Gemara says, Pshit, obviously, it's stealing infants out of their cribs. So, Amar HaPapa, Bekuchi Zitzaydi. We're talking about, like, a hide of hunters. That's what it's called, like, the thing that they do, like, a hide, right, where they, like, you know, sort of make a little hole and they hide in the ground or whatever, you know, for ca- casting animals. Anyway, so somehow they had an infant in this little hide. I don't know what they're doing, taking their baby. You know, what's this? If you're going hunting with friends, you're taking them both. <laughs> anyway, all right. Anyway, so in that type of a scenario, maybe it's not so crazy that it would have stolen the baby out, so you have to say that, no, that's still a problem. All right, moving on. That's wild animals. Then we also say, al you know, on the sword, troops that are passing through, that's another thing, like the Cholmakom. They're going from country to country when armies are on the march, and everybody has to fast. fast. Again, what's everybody, you know, how, you know, how much at the opposite sides of the world do you have to do it, but that's not fully explained. But anyway, troops is one of these things that are more universal. So, it goes without saying that if you're actually dealing with troops that are, you know, warring against countries, that you've got a problem. Um, even if they're, you know, they're, they're not attacking you. They're just passing through, getting safe passage through your land to attack somebody else. Nevertheless, if the world's at war, even if they're just passing through you right now, you've got to start worrying. You never know where it's going to end. You don't have a better example of a sword of peace, you know, just passing through, than Paronicho, which was, as we'll see, the time of King Yoshiyahu, that he was from Mitzrayim and he wanted to pass through to do, you know, war with the uh, nations on the, on the eastern side of Eretz Yisrael. Nevertheless, it was the stumbling of King Yoshio and it led to his death. Shenemar, I know. So let's first read the story and then we can talk about it. Shenemar, the verse says... And Paranacho sent messengers to Yoshio saying, because Yoshio went out to sort of, you know, to stop them. It's actually an interesting inverse of what we've been reading recently in Dvarim, that Yisrael just wanted to pass through, you know, Moab and Edom, and they came and they brought their troops out and said, you're not passing through. So here the reverse happened. You know, Paranacho just wanted to pass through at Yisrael, and Yoshio went out with his troops and said, no, you're not passing through. So he says, look, what are you doing getting involved in this? Well, what do I have against? Well, you know, what do you have against me? We don't have anything, we don't don't have any fight between us. I'm not coming to fight against you today. I'm going to the place I'm waging war. I'm just passing through here. And God has said to, you know, urge me on my way. So actually, you know, quoting God to King Yoshiawa, we'll see what the Gemara does, it, does with that. You lay off from, you know, opposing not only me, but God who is with me. 
let him not destroy you. And the end of the story is that Yoshio ignored him and went to war, and basically the archers shot at Yoshio, and Yoshio was brought back, and he, and he was mortally wounded, he was brought back to, you know, to his, uh, to his, to his home, and he died, and he died. And that was the end of King Yoshiahu. Um, so, which is actually something that we, that comes up in a lot of the keynotes that we say, or some of the keynotes that we say on, on Tishabav. So, my Elohim Asherini, so the Gemara first pauses to say, what is this God who is with me? Like, you know, what is, what is, uh, doing calling God? So, Amarav Yud Amarav, Zuavod Azar, he didn't really mean God. He meant God in the lowercase g, his God. So Amar, so that gave Yoshio a reason to think that he should be opposing him. Since he's putting his faith in idol, in, in this, uh, you know, in this idolatry, I will be able to oppose him. Now going back to the story, the archers shot at King Yoshio. You know, um, um, uh, take me away because I have, I'm like, I'm mortally wounded is the, is the meaning of that word in context, but the ma'od, or I'm very ill, but obviously it, the ill doesn't do justice to it. So the Gemara is going to say, what does the word hechelesi mean? They made his body like a sieve. It was like, you know, pierced with so many holes it was like a sieve. So probably from the word like mecholos, um, which are like, you know, tunnels or holes or something like that. Why was Yoshio punished? What did he do to deserve this? So, he was such a righteous king. He should have asked Yermio's advice and he didn't ask his advice. My Darish, what was Yoshio thinking? He looks at the Pasuk. The Pasuk says, When you're doing God's will, you'll get the blessing and no sword will pass through your land. So he said to himself, Look, my Cherev, what type of sword are we talking about? Literally, you won't be attacked in battle. You know, a war won't come to you. It already says that there'll be peace in the land. So it goes without saying we won't be attacked in battle. So Ella, it must mean a few show shalom, even a even armies that are not waging war among us. You know, we will be such a protected you know country that Reba won't even pass through pass through us to go to another country. So therefore, and he felt, I'm a righteous king. We're deserving of these blessings. I'm not going to let this happen. He did not know that his generation was not worthy. That's true. That was what the blessing was, but his generation was not worthy of that of that blessing. When he was dying, because then he was taken away from the battlefield and he died in his bed, and when he was dying, so he saw his lips, the lips of Yoshio, that were like uh, moving. Amar, like he was, he was muttering something. Amar, so Yoshio said, I mean, Yemio said, Maybe he's saying something inappropriate, like maybe he is uh, complaining against God, how could it be I was so righteous and this terrible thing is happening to me? So Yemio wanted to know what he was saying. So, Agav Tzare, because of his uh, pain. So, Gokhin Vishame to Kamatika so he bowed down to listen closely, and he heard that Yoshio was actually, you know, being matzikadin, uh, sort of attesting to the fact that God had done righteously. He wasn't complaining about Scott, he was quite the opposite. Whatever God does is just. Anase. Amar Sadiq Hu Hashem Kipiu Marikina. Obviously, where is this whole idea that he was whispering in Yemyo? Listen to him, I mean, that's like a big departure from the verses. There's no hint to it. But what we're seeing they're trying to do is to tie this story of Yoshio and Yemyahu into, and Yemyo wasn't explicitly there, but he was in the same time to link it to Megillah Echa, which was written by Yermiyahu, and show how that's being reflected in Megillah Echa. So the line in Megillah Echa, which is, Tzadik Hashem Kipiu Mariti, God is righteous, even though these terrible things have happened, the destruction of the temple, whatever, God in the end is righteous. The Gemara wants to see that as Yermiyahu reporting what Yoshia was saying, and bring this story into Megillah Echa. Patach Aleha Hishaita, and therefore Yermiyahu therefore responded to him in the following way. Ruach Apenu Mashiach Hashem. You know, so the our the whole the, 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 the you know God's anointed our entire hope about you know this Yoshio would save us. We wouldn't be the temple wouldn't be destroyed. Finally, a righteous king, and he and he was therefore trapped, you know, and stumbled because of our sins. Like in the end, the generation, as Mark said before, maybe he was righteous, but all the sins of the generation ultimately brought down his downfall. And this, by the way, for people know, right? There's a tina that begins by Yikonen Yirmiyahu Al Yoshiyahu that developed this whole theme of here was 
of their hope of salvation, you know, and he could have been the Mashiach and he could have saved them and prevented it, and in the end, you know, it's impossible to fully escape, you know, when the whole generation has gone awry, you, you know, you, can, you, know, you can't always escape that. Now, how is this exactly relevant to Cherif Sheinu Shalom? I mean, you could say, okay, you know, it's not a problem. Just if you, like, give them free passage, you won't be, you know, why do you have to fast? But the point is, once troops are on the march, you never know who's going to get caught up in that. You know, when people are going to war, what, at once, you know, you might start being an ally, and then you become the next country that's attacked. So, you know, so things might look like no big problem, you don't, and whenever there's a, whenever people, troops are marching, it's a problem. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. And all the other things that troops do, right, maybe they're not going to actually attack your country, but as they're traveling through, they're going to rape and pillage and plunder. Exactly. Now, that isn't exactly brought out from the Yoshio story. The example isn't so great. But, but anyway, but you understand the concern about this. Yeah. yeah but the right is that if Jarash was, was right, it would have been her shalom, that's even the Brachel. So that indicates... But the only reason why he wasn't blessed because his generation wasn't Right, but the... Right, right, correct. I think just by asking the question, why was he punished, implies that he was correct to Right, that's I think what Mike was saying. The fact that there has to be a, that there's a bracha that you don't have even a chav shalom passing through right. shows that even a chav shalom is a is a problem. Right, exactly. Right, right, right. Implies that his actions, his actions were, were yeah, right, right, yes. Oh, yeah. What everyone's assuming to me the sin of the generation is that they didn't support it. They wanted the troops to be able to... Oh, I don't think so. I think other areas in Chazal, it's basically like, you know, people were still being over the Zara and what I mean, he was trying to, up, you know, change hundreds of years of, you know, deeply ingrained going off the derech. So, you know, that, that, that was hard, you know. I, other Gemaras, I think, bear that out. Okay, let's read a little bit more. So there was a story that the elders came from Yerushalayim to their cities and they made a ta'anit because they were seen a mali kivshan, the fill of the mouth of an oven of, uh, I think it was uh, Yerakon in Ashkelon, of this type of a diseased grain. So Ibayalu, Kamali Tanur when they say the fill of an oven, did they see that was it how much grain did they see that was that was uh, diseased? Remember Rabbi Akiva said even a tiny bit, but here it seems like there's a minimum amount. So at least according to them. How much how much was it? Was it a, an oven filled with grain? That much was diseased? Odilma Kamali Tanur pot the amount of grain that would make bread to fill an oven. But that's obviously a lot less grain than actually fills an oven. It's just the amount of grain you would need because bread, you know, expands and whatever. So, Tashma, come here. Kamali Pitanwar, the mouth of the oven. So, you know, you could have bread like sitting in the mouth of an oven, but if you try to put grain in the mouth of the oven, it's all going to spill. So, it means bread. So, the amount of grain to get bread that would fill the mouth of an oven. The dying to Bailu, we could still ask. Kikisuya de Tanura, enough bread to just fill the opening of the oven? Odiuma Kidara de Rifta, the Hazale Lapuma de Tanura. Is it stacked bread from the bottom of the oven all the way to the mouth of the oven? Or is it just bread in the mouth of the oven? Take it, we don't know. But anyway, here you have a sense against Rabbi Akiva that said even the slightest amount that there's some minimum. Because these wolves ate these two kids, or there was another version that just because they were appeared, and that goes back to the Gemara we said before, did they appear in the city, did they appear in the forest, you know, those types of issues. There was a story where two wolves uh, consumed, um, devoured two, two, two children or two babies and they uh, excreted them. And it came before the rabbis. So that's coming out of left field. And they were dealing with it from a Tumantara perspective. So the, the meat that had been transformed into excrement was no longer considered meat and was no longer Tameh. The bones were still bones, and therefore they were tamay. So, again, it's interesting, but what I do have to say it's also doing is, and similar to the previous Gemara of exactly how much bread are we talking about, wheat or bread or whatever, is we're getting it, like, you think about the radical sort of shift of genre we did. Not only from Agatha to Halakha, but even before when we were talking about the Halakhs of Ta'anid, they were much more, I would say, like, embracing the whole experience of what this means, about what's happening and how we're responding it to. And here, we're very, it's a very detached type of an analysis. Okay, let's figure out exactly how much grain. What would be the status of the bones of the kids that were excreted? I mean, 
it's very clinical and detached, which is the standard sort of way halacha is operating. You know, I think that that's interesting considering that the halacha, even the halachic discussions that preceded seemed much more engaged in the larger sort of religious experience of what was going on. I don't know what to make of it, but it's certainly interesting to note that type of a shift. Um, let's just try to read a little bit more. Um, the following you can even do on Shabbat it talks about like every city is being attacked or rivers over flooding whether it's a city that's being attacked or a boat that's about to tip out, you know that, that's about to caught in a storm or somebody's being chased after by non-Jews or by robbers or an evil spirit whatever that is so the normal act there's a, there's a, the text really should say if you look at the side and these you would sort of have the special Tefillot on Shabbat, point number one, which is what our Mishnah says, although it added a few things. And then it adds another point to this, which is, a person is allowed to, uh, to afflict himself. Very interesting graphic, you know, description. Afflict yourself with a, with a fast because of these occurrences. Let me just read it. You're not allowed to do this. Lest you be people, you need other people because now you're, you know, you're, you're sickly and you're not healthy and you, know, you, you fasted and they won't have compassion on you. Maybe you, they won't provide you food. Maybe because they'll feel you, you did it to yourself or maybe just stand. They won't have compassion on you. You're not allowed to put yourself in that situation. The person was a living soul. The soul I gave you, make sure to keep it alive. So this is very interesting. Like, what is this debate doing here? This sounds like the general debate of is it a good thing to make a ta'anit or not. So I would argue that what's going on, and number one, what's the chiddush you're allowed to make a ta'anit? The whole thing is that you're allowed as an individual to make a ta'anit, so we as a tzibur have to make a ta'anit. So number one, it's possible that Tanakam is saying even on Shabbat. On Shabbat, we're not going to be gozer at Tanit Sibur. But these things which are so urgent, the, blood, the, the ship is about to sink, the city is about to be attacked, if you as an individual want to make a Tanit on Shabbat, you're allowed. So that would explain why the Tanakam has to say you're allowed as an individual, because maybe we're talking specifically on Shabbat. Similarly, Rabbi Yossi's opposition might be a general opposition to doing a Tanit, but it also might be, remember what Rabbi Yossi said in the Mishnah. Does anybody remember what Rabbi Yossi said in the Mishnah about Matri'in on Shabbat? He said, yeah, you can be Matri'in on Shabbat if you want to call people to help. You can't be Matri'in to do special tefillot. And he might be saying the same thing here. The right response, if this is happening on Shabbat, is not for people to fast. If people are fasting, they're actually hurting the cause. Don't fast. Eat what you need to eat and take care of the people, uh, of the city and of the, uh, you know, start putting the sandbags up to protect the river from overflowing. So it could be that he's not talking about a general, uh, you know, sort of uh, opposition to fasting, but sometimes you don't pray and you don't fast, you act. And that seems to be consistent with Rabiosi and the Mishnah. Okay, we will end here. Yeah. Really, it's a present for you oh, just in honor of your ascension, okay? Oh, <laughs> excellent, thank you. And now I'll have a desk here. I can keep it locked <laughs> up. Thank you very much. So that's really not standard? What? Yes, Orbach uh, wrote a whole article, uh, article of that. It's one line. It was a line that was inserted later in the Mishnah that Rashi says. It's not Rashi in Argirsa, but the Maharshal quotes it. You know, Rashi already testifies to the fact that that line was added later so the Mishnah wouldn't have to start by saying Elu Elohim Chelavonaba, so it's added as a nice way of intru- you know, so it wouldn't start on a harsh point, but it really is not at all standard within theology. If I more about wrote an article on it. Um, yeah, but that's what I say. What? No, that's that's what we say. It's become our practice. It's not in Pirkei Avot. Right. It gets reinforced. I don't know because we like telling ourselves that we're all going to get a I don't know when. I don't know when it started becoming part of that. I want to try something else on the, yeah. uh, in addition to the um, homiletic utility of those stories of Shabbat attacks by, right. by right. people you wouldn't expect right. and, and deserve a lot of merit, blah, blah, blah. I wonder if, in fact, there's something bigger um, than that that really validates the, the, the entire enterprise. Mm-hmm. By which I mean... The, uh, fundamentally, to me, what the rabbinic enterprise was about, right. it was about holiness. 
and about making the argument that you can live in the world and still be holy. Um, which, in contrast to, to right. the Sadducees, for example, right. and all these other cultures. Right. That, that, that's sort of what it was about. And here are people who are living in the world, right. but acting in a holy the way. way. Pure. Right. Every one of those, their acts right. were pure. Right. Absolutely pure right. and holy. So I wonder if, in a sense, what they're saying, this is what we're all about. Right. We're about living in the world. Right. Not necessarily locking up ourselves up in a big midrash right. and, and being the smartest person around. Right. Um, but it's about, about living holy lives. Right. Being right. holy. Right. In the world. Right. I think that that's, a be- I think that that's absolutely correct. And I think that, although the merchant expanded because it never told us the difference between Abai and Rava, why Abai got a weekly visit and Rava only an annual one, you know, I think it goes back to another Gemara that said that Abai, that Abai lived to 60 and Rubber to 40 because Abai was Osek in Torah and Gamil of Chassadim and Rubber was just in Torah. So I think that, I think that's an excellent point. Yeah. Shkaya, thank you. Um, in the Gemara, I mean, we can do that nowadays if necessary. Um, but in the Gemara, I think that it was just. Um, I'm just trying to see here. Hold on. In the Gemara, I think that it was just that it was like it would be unheard of to, you know, like like it would be like you know before like a hundred years ago, if somebody were to say, you know, well, why don't you consider uh, going by your mother's last name, right? Like, I mean, I still remember that like um, we were in Florida, just, you know when we lived in Florida like 15 years ago or something, and um, I went to pick up the dry cleaning, you know, and I said, Linda said, no, I don't have to take it. I said, well, maybe my uh, wife dropped it off. Can you check on the slot now? And they said, well, why would your wife have a different last name than you? Like, it was like, you know, it was like completely unfathomable. So, you know, I just think that that was just what I, I you know, but we, we can do that nowadays. But what you do by, if, if somebody's um, father is not Jewish or, you know, or don't know who the father is, so the Ramah brings down the practice of using the mother's um, mother's father's name, um, but um, in the Ksuva. But what you could also do is you could just use the mother's name, you know. But again, there was it was it was just assumed that of course you identify people in a patriarchy, you identify people by their father, but you know by by some male can by some male relative, you know. <laughs> Let's say I said to you, oh well, you know we can't use your father's name. Let's just use your brother's name. Like, why would you use my brother's name? Like, right, you know? So, uh, it's, uh, you know, so that's, I think, that's the 